Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. God, Becky, listen to that podcast. It's so big. It's so round. It's so gross. I totally bet they talk about dead people. That's right. All day and all night. Murder and music all up in your a-hole like a big-ass butt plug that talks about music and murder 24-7. So here we are, episode 7, and it seems like just two weeks ago that we were at episode 6. Wait, it was just two weeks ago. So this is part two of a two-part Danny Rowling Music and Murder Marathon. If you haven't listened to part one, episode six yet, please go back and listen to it. Otherwise, this episode may not make all that much sense. So anyway, here we go. On with the show. Once again, as in episode six... I'm going to refer to Daniel Harold Rowling as simply Danny. So we left with Danny renting a hotel room and then setting up a campsite just a couple of miles away from University of Florida, which is in Gainesville, Florida. So Danny rented a hotel room so he was able to take a shower. He makes a cassette tape. He records some dark folk songs that he wrote. And he also talks about some of the crimes that he's committed. And he tells his family not to worry about him. Because he's a big boy that can take care of himself. Now Danny also leaves a message for his dear old alcoholic dad that he shot in the stomach and then in the forehead. Leaving him deformed with one functional ear and one functional eye. He tells his dad, and I quote, You pushed me away at a young age. Pop, I wanted to make you proud of me. I let you down. I'm sorry for that. End quote. And then after that, Danny says, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something that I got to do. I love you. Bye. Now we have to keep in mind, Danny's not only running from the law because he broke out of prison that he, in air quotes, walked out of, but he also shot his dad, who was a Louisiana police officer. Thus, he knows for a fact that when he gets caught, he's going away for a very, very long time, if not forever. Even if he did apologize to his dad on his little infamous cassette tape. So in Danny's mind, and obviously, I'm just speculating here, but in his mind, he really only had two choices. And those choices are to A, commit suicide and just get it over with, or B, make a huge name for himself like Ted Bundy or other big name serial killers. Hillside Strangler was one of them. And the Hillside Strangler and Danny had some similarities in their crime scenes, so we will go over that. So that way when he got this name, he could be a big shot in prison and that name would likely keep anyone from wanting to fuck with him. Now, personally, I would have figured that he would have chosen option A, especially with his childhood background of trying to commit suicide. But Danny was a rebel, even when it came to doing the wrong thing. Get it? He rebelled even against making the wrong choices and doing the wrong things. No? All right. So Danny decided to go with option B, which was make a name for himself and make sure that everyone knew that he was crazy, cold-hearted, and a murderer that wasn't anyone to be fucked with. Also, one thing about Danny that wasn't public knowledge was that he was obsessed with Ted Bundy. He didn't only see Bundy as a superstar of sorts, he also wanted to become him, and he envied him. 
The main problem with this, though, was that Danny just didn't have the stomach or the psychotic mind that Bundy had. But Danny was really, really good at improvising and adapting. And so, it begins. On August 24th, 1990, Danny, after chillingly signing off from his cassette tape that he recorded, rode his 10-speed stolen bicycle to the Gainesville University of Florida campus. Once there, Danny ate lunch and drifted over to the dorms in the campus apartments. Once there, he waited on campus till the wee hours of the morning. Around 2.30 a.m., he was doing his voyeurism thing. You know, being creepy as fuck, peering through windows while playing pocket pool with himself, when he spotted a female college freshman named Christina Powell. Powell was sleeping on the couch. Now Christina, who by the way literally was only 17 years old, she interested Danny because she was what? She was Danny's type. Young with brown hair and brown eyes. He told authorities during his confession that he felt as though he just won the lottery when he peered through the window and saw Christina Powell. So Danny breaks in going through the slider door in the back using a military-issued K-bar knife. And let's not forget, Danny was in the Air Force. So albeit he wasn't a Marine or a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL, but he still had some skills and he knew how to use a military knife. Once inside the apartment, Danny stood and hovered over Christina Powell's sleeping body for a couple of minutes, possibly masturbating a little. And when I say masturbating, I believe it was more like heavy rubbing on himself and his hands down his pants type stuff. I don't mean that he broke out the lube and began to full on jerk off. I think he waited till he was alone after the home invasion slash rape slash murder for all of that. Now after that brief encounter with Powell, he left her asleep and creeped slowly upstairs, kind of like Boogie Woogie Woo for all of you juggalos out there, and he found another young lady sleeping. It was another University of Florida freshman and Christina Powell's roommate. This young lady's name was Sonia Larson, and she was barely 18 years old, and like Christina, just a baby, starting her new life away from home for the very first time. I think that's what gets me the most about these murders, is the ages. I will cover cases in the future of murders involving much younger children, but still, it's never easy, and this case is a difficult one for me, these girls weren't just victims, they're not just episode 7, they were real breathing human beings like you and I. Sometimes when you deal with so many of these cases, you tend to forget that from time to time. Alright, rant over. Now when Danny found Sonia, he realized that he had his pick of raping either Sonia or Christina. But in order to have the opportunity to rape one of them, he definitely had to kill the other one first and he'd have to kill her in a very quiet manner because if the other one awoke they'd surely catch him in the act and either run out of the house screaming or at least call 911. Denny made his choice very quickly. Christina Powell would be the one that he would sexually assault at least first which meant that Sonia had to die immediately and Sonia had to die quietly. Danny unrolled a long strip of duct tape that he had in his little rape kit and he stood over her, carefully studying where all of her vital organs were. And he struck with the speed of a cobra. He grabbed her by the hair with his left hand behind her head and with his right hand he wrapped the duct tape around her mouth, nose, and head. He punched her a few times but it didn't do much to quiet Sonia she was still trying to fight him off with everything that she had. Which was impressive considering that Danny was around 6'2 and not weak. He was skinny, but he was strong. 
After a few minutes of struggling with putting the tape around Sonia's face, he finally was able to subdue her enough to pull out his military issue K-bar knife and start stabbing her repeatedly. Sonia died from three fatal stab wounds all to the neck and chest area. He likely would have stabbed her many, many more times, but with his other sleeping potential victim downstairs, he knew that he had to act fast. When he creeped back downstairs, he approached the sleeping 17-year-old Christina Powell, and he did the same thing as he did with Sonia upstairs. He grabbed the back of her head with his left hand, grabbed a handful of her hair, taped her mouth shut, then pulled her head up off of the couch so he could wrap a few more strands of the tape around her mouth and her entire head, being sure not to cut off her air supply because he wanted Christina alive. He stood Christina up by pulling her up by her hair. Danny was pumped with adrenaline and likely three times stronger than he was usually. Just imagine if he got to hit some crystal on that glass pipe. But smoking crystal wasn't a thing until like 2000 or so, so likely he was just snorting cocaine and drinking alcohol. But this is purely speculation in my opinion. There was nothing in Danny's police confessions that stated that he was high at the time, but the issue was never really pushed by the detective because the issue of him being high or not wasn't really all that relevant, at least to these detectives. So after picking up Powell by her hair, he then duct taped her hands behind her back. And then he took his military K-bar knife and he slowly cut off all of her clothes piece by piece. Danny must have felt really, really safe and comfortable there because for this double homicide, he was not in the least bit hurrying up at all. We'll be right back after this song from me. This is a song that doesn't remind me of anything to do with this case or any murder at all for that matter. It's just a song that I feel like listening to so I'm going to make you listen to it as well. It's off my 2018 album, Shit Yeah, and it is titled, She Likes to Roll. Hope you like it. If you don't, just push the forward button a couple times. You'll be fine. She likes to roll high-riding cowboys And she likes to go every night and day She don't talk about the past much And we don't ask any questions We all know that girl ain't seen it all She likes to roll our way And she likes to go She saddled up and just rode away 
This is Music and Murder. This is a podcast about music and mostly murder. My name is Michael Dikini. I am your host. I have an Instagram page that I set up for Music and Murder that I'd really like for you to follow. It is music underscore murder underscore podcast. And this is so I could see our listeners. Our numbers are really good as far as subscriptions and people listening and downloading the show, but I literally have 229 followers on Instagram, which is kind of hurting my feelings a little bit. So if some of you could possibly look on there and follow, I will follow you back. If you would like to get your music on this show, which I would love to play it, if it's good, you can email me at murdercast at mail.com. Murdercast at mail.com. Or you can just send me some links on Instagram and we can talk on there. Or if you'd just like to talk about the show, just feel free to uh, message me and say, dude, you fucking suck. Or hey, I really like the show. I can handle it either way. All right. That's enough self-shameless promotion. Back to our story. So Danny now had 17-year-old Christina Powell duct-taped. He had her subdued with her hands taped behind her back. And he had her mouth duct-taped shut as well. He cut her clothes off one garment at a time. And then, of course, he raped her repeatedly. And then when he was done and had as much sex as his 36-year-old ass could take, he finally forced young 17-year-old Christina Powell down on the ground, face down, and he stabbed her five times in the back with his military massive K-bar knife, making sure to hit all of her vital organs, such as her heart and her lungs. And while we're on the subject of the military-issued K-bar knife, that is usually associated with the United States Marine Corps. So you know, it's a really intimidating and functional knife that you can purchase for around $160. Fun fact regarding that knife, and the movie Scream that was loosely based on these murders and written by Kevin Williamson, who not only wrote the original, but also wrote Scream Part 2 and Scream Part 4 as well. I don't know what happened with number three, but I'm guessing it sucked. The movie Scream actually didn't use a K-bar knife. The film featured a slash-happy mask-wearing perpetrator who stabbed his victims with a buck knife. And the buck knife was number 119, and sometimes number 120. I don't know why they decided to change the knives up, but they also changed the mask and many other things. But both of the real murders and the movie did have one thing in common, and that was that they both involved stabbings. Hmm. So in my opinion, as a dumbass podcaster, 
I have to state that the more I learn about this actual case and the movie, the more I don't see any other similarities. Not to mention, Danny Harold Rowling was actually a balding man who was almost entering middle age. So he wasn't young like they have him being in the movie. What's that, Kermit? Oh, I have Kermit the Frog over here and he's sipping hot tea and he just said that I'm right, but it's none of his business. You know you sound like a meme, Kermit. Shut the fuck up. Go fuck a pig. So Danny rapes and kills 17-year-old Christina Powell and then he heads back upstairs to take care of his unfinished business with 18-year-old Sonia Larson. He decides just to check on her at this time because before he really deals with her, or rather deals with her corpse at this point, Danny wants to take a shower. He wants to wash the blood off and eat something. Danny then decides to just walk back downstairs and make himself a sandwich. He likely even watched TV with Christina's blood still all over him and her naked blood-covered corpse right next to him as he ate a sandwich and watched TV. He then thinks it's a bad idea to take a shower when he's done eating because he had yet to rape Sonia's corpse. So when he finishes his sandwich, he walks back upstairs to do that. And in the same manner that he cut off Christina's clothes, via the K-Bar knife, he cuts Sonia's clothes off as well. And then he bends Sonia over the bed where her knees are on the floor and he gets on his knees behind her and he rapes her dead body. Now, I honestly don't think that he really wanted to do this and got off on it. I honestly don't think that Danny was an actual necrophiliac. I think he either lied about doing this or he just did it to be able to say that he did it to sound like Ted Bundy. Possibly in hopes that women everywhere would send him fan mail and want to marry him since he killed women and raped their dead bodies. Because... A lot of women do that for God knows why. It goes back to the dark ages, but there is a reason for it. So after Danny finishes with Sonia, he finally then does take a shower. He pours cleaning solution, which I'm guessing may have been bleach, all over the girls' bodies. Sonia was left bent over on the bed, just as he allegedly had sex with her, and Christina was left bent over on the couch in the living room. Police theorize that he posed them in this manner. But as for me, I believe that on this one, he merely just left them the way that they were after he raped them. I don't think that he did it on purpose for shock value. But obviously, like anybody else, I could be wrong. But you see, Danny was very, very articulate funny, and he would have came up with something much better had he tried to pose them. I'd think so, at least, that he would have likely left a foreign object or two inside of them or something something like that. Danny was getting ready to finally leave this apartment where he literally unleashed the wrath of hell on these two poor innocent female victims, but he stopped. Danny wasn't done. Not yet. Not yet. He needed something, something that he could masturbate with and recreate this double rape, homicide, and necrophiliac episode. So before leaving, Danny pulled out the K-Bar knife one last time and he sliced off young Christina Powell's nipples and he put them in his pocket before leaving. Now as far as we know, This is the first time that Danny had ever taken a souvenir from any murder or rape. But he may just have taken souvenirs and just not remember taking them, or it may not be in the police reports. But then again, this is the first time Danny also had sex with a corpse, according to him. And in this case, it was two corpses. Joe motherfucking exotic. Oh, fuck. Well, I got something for Joe this time. (laughs) You're going to like this.
Hello? Well, hey, Joe. I heard you try to shoot your woman down, shot her down. Then you got caught for it because you hired a fucking tweaker. What the fuck you want calling my phone, motherfucker? You listen here, motherfucker. I'm getting out of this motherfucker, and I know where you're at, Kenny. I know right where the fuck you are, motherfucker. Yeah, well, I guess you're gonna have to come get me, Joe. And you're gonna have to suck my dick when you do. And you know what, by the way? I got somebody here that you might want to talk to. Who the fuck do I want to talk to that's hanging out with you, motherfucker? Hold on. Hey, do you want to come over here and say hello to Joe? Hold on, she's coming. She's coming. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Carol at Big Cat Rescue. What the fuck? Carol motherfucking Baskin? Motherfucker! You're hanging out with Carol Baskin, you motherfucking cocksucker! Fuck that motherfucking cunt bitch slut fucking whore! I'm gonna fucking kill that motherfucking bitch! I'm gonna make OJ look like a motherfucking Disney character, motherfucker! I'm gonna slash both your motherfucking throats! Fuck that Carol fucking Baskin! Wow, so it turns out that Joe really doesn't like Carol fucking Baskin. He, like, really doesn't like her. Huh, it wasn't just all for Netflix or, like, for theatrical purposes. He really wants to kill her. <laughs> he wants to kill me, too. Well, fuck him. Time to get back to our story. And, you know, I don't really feel like telling the story at this moment, especially after that conversation. I'm a little traumatized because I kind of want to kill Joe now. So I need, I need to kind of let that fester down. So I'm going to play a band. Uh, what are we going to do? Let's do Lip Gloss and Let Down by Static Lullaby. I don't even know if Static Lullaby is still together, but I used to run sound for them sometimes when they would come in the Fresno. And really good band. And I don't like to throw away good music, no matter how old it is or if the band is together or not. It's a piece of art, and art lasts forever. So I hope you like this song. We will get back to the story as soon as it's done.
So Danny has just killed, raped, and allegedly posed Christina Powell and Sonia Larson. And he then rides his stolen 10-speed bicycle back to his campsite and he rests for the day. Likely jerking off to his recent memoirs with Christina Powell's nipples in his hand. He then gets a good night's sleep and he sets back off once again. But this time he finds himself at the Williamsburg Apartments about one mile from where Pal and Larson's apartment was. Now Danny ends up at an apartment belonging to 18-year-old Krista Hoyt, who was a record clerk with the local sheriff's department and a student at Santa Fe Community College. Krista Hoyt wasn't home when Danny broke into her apartment around 8 a.m., and he broke into her apartment in the same exact manner that he broke into the others, which was using his trusty K-bar knife and a screwdriver. So Danny waited for her. He likely went through her laundry and smelled her undergarments and did some investigative work to determine if she was alone or not. At least, living alone or not. He didn't have to wonder about what she looked like because one thing that I left out, not only was Krista Hoyt Danny's type with brown hair and brown eyes, but Danny had already known this, which is why he decided to break into her apartment in the first place. Now once inside, Danny moves a bookshelf to hide behind and waited there until Krista came home. And I'm sure every second that he was waiting for Krista, he was fantasizing in anticipation about all of the absolute horrible things that he was going to do to this poor girl. This may be why this particular crime scene is one of the worst and most infamous in American history. Now, Krista arrived back at her apartment around 11 a.m. Upon walking into what she thought was her safe apartment that kept her away from the outside world, Danny leaped out from behind the bookshelf in which he was hiding behind, and he attacked Hoyt from behind, putting her in a chokehold, and then proceeded to duct tape her hands and her mouth in the same exact manner that he did with Pal and Larson. He dragged her violently by her hair to the bedroom where he cuts off all of her clothes with his K-bar knife. And then just like the others, he forces her to the ground on her knees and he rapes her. Then when he's done ejaculating twice, he stabs her in the back with his knife in the same exact manner as he did with the other ones. Only this time, he stabbed and stabbed until her entire heart was completely ruptured. The autopsy and the police reports do not clarify how many stab wounds that there were, and this is likely due to the fact that they couldn't tell. Because you see, Danny for some reason really wanted to make a statement with this particular murder slash rape. And it was at this point that Danny really started to develop a classic motive of operation, or what we in the crime field call NMO, or technically modus operandi. I mean, in Danny's mind, he's like, why fix it if it's not broke? This is totally working for me. So Danny keeps doing what Danny does. He then jumps on his 10-speed and takes off to his campsite faster than a Fresno tweaker on his way to score a glass stick full of crystal. And he gets back to his campsite, but only this time there's a little problem. You see, Danny in his pursuit of waiting, killing, raping, duct taping, and then fleeing has lost his wallet. So, of course, he has to go back. Now this infuriates Danny and he is pissed. However, luckily when he arrives to the blood-soaked room of 18-year-old newly deceased Krista Hoyt, he finds his wallet. 
But all of this tweaker 10-speed riding has now made him pissed and extremely horny. So, he bends Hoyt's deceased body over the side of the bed, gets on his knees, and he rapes her corpse. And when he's done, he lays her on her back, and he decides that this time, oh this time, he's really going to make a name for himself. He takes his K-bar knife and literally begins cutting her head off. Now I know that dismemberment in the movies looks pretty simple, but trust me, cutting off an 18 year old girl's head with a knife is going to take quite some time and a lot of effort and a lot of work. Now I'm guessing at least three to five minutes of pure cutting and then you'd likely have to chop through the neck bone because a knife really isn't going to just slice through a neck bone. So this was an extremely brutal act. Now after removing Krista Hoyt's head, Danny then took the knife while she was still on her back and he stabbed her in her sternum, which is in itself a lot of force. And then he cuts in a saw-like motion all the way down to her pubic bone. Then before he leaves, he cuts off her nipples and he positions or rather poses her body bent over on the bed with her knees on the ground and her waist laying on the bed with her legs spread open and then he takes her severed head and he sets it on a bookshelf across the room and he positions her head in the direction of her body so that her severed head was literally overlooking her sexually posed nude and bloody body with of course her severed nipples laying right beside of her. He then gets back on his 10 speed and takes off again like a full force tweaker. Now I know it's one thing to hear some dumbass podcaster talk about a crime scene and it's quite another when you hear a veteran detective like LeGrand Hewitt of the Gainesville Police Department talk about it. He was one of the first people on the scene and here's what he had to say about this scene. While walking through the crime scene at Krista Hoyt's apartment, the floor was a mess from the blood and body fluids leaking from where her head had been removed. She had been disemboweled from her uh, pelvic area all the way to her xiphoid process. And so her uh, internal organs were exposed when she was laid back on the bed. She had a bra and a shirt that was found on the bed that had been cut just like Christine Powell's from the waistline all the way up to the neckline and then from the middle of the breast out to the arms on the t-shirt. Never ever any of our law enforcement officers that were uh, exposed to these crime scenes had ever seen anything like that. And thank the good Lord, we haven't seen anything like that since. I don't think I'll ever forget those scenes. So Danny was riding away on his bicycle on his 10 speed and he never took a shower this time. But he did wash his hands so his clothes had to be spattered with blood. But he was just going back to his campsite, so it wasn't that big of a deal. After a little rest and a couple days later, he was ready again. On Monday 27th, Danny would commit his last homicide in Gainesville, or in this case, his last double homicide. Now Danny waited until 3 a.m. and finally broke into an apartment belonging to roommates 23-year-old Manuel Tabota and 23-year-old Tracy Paulus. He first encountered Manuel, who friends call Manny, so we're just going to call him Manny, sleeping in his bedroom. Now this was a rare event because not only was Manny not Danny's type, but Manny was 6'3", a powerhouse 
that was known to be extremely strong and very athletic. So once Danny broke in, he immediately stabbed Manny while he was sleeping right in his solar plexus, which is in the chest area right underneath your sternum. But this didn't even really phase Manny. So a fight between the two ensued. Details for this altercation weren't available in the police report because the end result was that Danny stabbed Manny 31 times. Which to me means that Manny fought back pretty damn hard and likely literally physically hurt Danny which was probably the main reason for the bloody overkill that took place. Now during the struggle, Manny's roommate Tracy Pollins comes out. She comes out of her room, she sees Danny stabbing her roommate, and then she runs back into her room and slams and locks the door. She then began to put furniture and everything that she could in front of the door to try to keep Danny out. But Danny especially in this adrenalized state, broke the entire door down. He then beats Tracy down. He tapes her hands behind her back and her mouth, and just like the other victims, Pollins was stabbed in the back. But this time, unlike the other victims, he only stabbed her once. And she died immediately from her aorta collapsing. Danny then fled, he was probably exhausted, and he still had a bit of a bike ride to get back to his campsite. And I'm sure it does take a lot of energy to ride your 10-speed to an apartment a mile away, break in, fight with a guy much younger and bigger than you, stab him 31 times, break down a door, and rape and kill a 23-year-old woman, and then get back on your 10-speed and ride back to camp, covered in blood and hope that you weren't seen. It amazes me that Danny even raped Tracy Pollins after this encounter with Manuel, but I guess he felt that he had to, because after all, Tracy was his type. Yeah, brown hair and brown eyes, so he probably couldn't control himself, even if it meant getting caught. So three days later, on August 30th, 1990, police find and arrest the man that committed these horrendous acts, or rather, the person that they thought committed these horrendous acts. Police acting on a tip about a man who lived in the Gatorwood Apartments, who apparently had a crush on Tracy Pollins, the last victim, and he also lived for a brief time right by where Christina Powell went to summer school. Now this man's name was Edward Humphrey, and he was 18, and he lived with his grandma until he was kicked out of the apartment complex for being a violent weirdo. So Ed was not a regular guy. He was kind of that guy you would likely love to hate. He was arrested for beating on his 79-year-old grandmother, in which he was living with at the time. And after his arrest, police saw that his face had many scratches on it, which we find out later came from a car wreck, where Humphrey was ejected from the vehicle going about 60 miles per hour. But nevertheless, Humphrey's neighbors and police thought that this would be their man. Keep in mind, during the four days that the five young college students were raped, murdered, decapitated, killed, and mutilated, there was a frenzy all around Gainesville, Florida, and someone had to pay for it. And that someone at this time was Ed Humphrey. His face was plastered on every TV station all across America. And he was demonized literally overnight. Now you and I know that he didn't do it. And Danny knew that he didn't do it. And of course, Ed Humphrey himself knew that he didn't do it. But everybody else who was alive in 1990 thought that he did do it. 
Also, please send him to have a psychiatric evaluation in which Ed was diagnosed with manic depression, which is now called bipolar disorder, but you know because of the Jimi Hendrix song, I like to call it manic depression. So in other words, Ed Humphrey had psychological problems, legitimate psychological problems. He was placed on $1 million bail for an arrest stemming from beating up his grandma because they did not have enough evidence to arrest him for the murders. They just thought that he committed the murders. I suppose at this time, the FBI didn't have time to actually profile this case because anyone in the field of forensic psychology would know that this was absolutely not their guy. I mean, you could watch a fucking episode of CSI and know that this isn't the guy that did all of this. Now, on September 6th, police get a warrant to search Humphrey's apartment. They find out that he does have a split personality. Half of his apartment was completely clean, and the other half was a rotten pigsty. But they didn't find anything at all to do with the murders. And any murder, for that matter. But you know the popo. They want to be right, so they still continue to try to build a case against this innocent man. Well, let's say innocent, except for obviously beating up his grandma, which is why I think it's kind of funny that all of this happened to him, because it's a little bit of poetic justice. The thing that isn't funny is that the real piece of shit that did all of this was still out there, right? Which brings me to my next point. Humphrey really looks guilty because all of these murders stopped. How could that be if it wasn't Humphrey? I can't answer that right this second. Maybe it was just a coincidence. So they take a DNA sample from Humphrey because this is basically when DNA all began. And then in October, while awaiting for the results, they sentence Humphrey to 22 months in a psychiatric hospital for beating on his grandma. Of course, during this time, the DNA results do come back, and of course, they come back negative. And Humphrey doesn't even receive an apology. Not even a teeny tiny apology. Like, not even like, sorry for ruining your entire life, and making you look like one of the worst serial killers in history, apology. No, it was more like, hey, you dumb fucking piece of shit, maybe you shouldn't beat up on your 79-year-old grandma, and this type of shit wouldn't happen to you, you dumbass. And so, the hunt is still on for the real killer. We'll be right back with the conclusion, and of course, our final discussion after this song, from Becky Schlegel. It is called Bound for Tennessee. I hope you like it. Stop and listen close to what I'm saying.
So the hunt was on for the real, actual serial killer who killed all of these college students. The police are now utilizing their technology to correlate the homicides and rape from Gainesville to the homicides in Louisiana. They know that the MO is extremely similar and that the same knife was likely used as well. So they're finally making some leeway in this case and starting to make sense of everything. In the meantime, Danny is still out and about playing Jesse James and pulling out his gun and demanding free money. Because after all, Danny is still a fugitive and he actually likes to rob people and places. On September 7, 1990, just four days after Ed Humphrey was arrested and 10 days after Tracy Pollins and Manuel Tabota's bodies were found, Danny was arrested. He was arrested for robbing a Winn-Dixie, which was one of his favorite places to rob, if you remember. So yes, this means that Danny was in jail when Ed Humphrey was arrested, which means we now know why the murders stopped after Humphrey was arrested. See, I didn't leave you hanging for too long. Now, when Danny was first incarcerated, he once again confessed to everything, even shooting his dad, his cop dad. But when I say everything, I mean everything except for any murders. He did, however, request a meeting with a prison psychiatrist, which was promptly set up. Now, when Danny saw this prison psychiatrist, he did have a lot to say. Here's a clip of Danny's psychiatrist talking about their little session when Danny was incarcerated. The chief public defender in Marion County contacted me on a uh, late Friday. They said they had arrested Danny Rawling and they had some questions about his psychological status. Well, we started off talking about the burglary, and he admitted to doing that. And I determined that he was competent. As I was going out the door, he asked if I could, uh, if he could speak to me about some other crimes that he had committed that were unrelated to the Marion County crimes. I think he felt like he needed to talk to a, uh, a mental health counselor of some type. He asked me if he did tell me about those, would they still be confidential? I explained to him that it was by law confidential and that I would not be able to share that information. He began talking to me about uh, that he had killed and uh, sexually raped several people. It was unfortunately the victims in Gainesville. He went through every detail of every case. The way he told the story was horrific and obviously disturbing and upsetting, despite the fact that I've worked on numerous um, homicides before. This was one of the worst I've heard. I tried when I was listening to remain as neutral as possible and not show my own emotion. And so when I left the jail, I sat down in my car and I broke down. It was very difficult. This man just killed five people. He also admitted to me that he killed three people in Louisiana, raped several of them. Uh, and I knew Danny could possibly get out of jail for the armed robbery, although they had a lot of evidence against him. I felt right away that I had a great burden, but I also had some ethical concerns uh, because I knew that I could not share this information with law enforcement, with um, anybody other than the defense team. I struggled with that. I was thinking, what if I made a, uh, an anonymous call to law enforcement? I went to talk to the chief judge in Alachua County and I spoke to him hypothetically about where my responsibilities are and he confirmed what I thought that I just can't tell anybody what I learned. It could also mess up his case. If information that I obtained confidentially was shared with anybody, especially anybody in law enforcement. So the conversation was muted 
due to that gosh darn confidentiality bullshit. Can you just imagine what prison psychiatrists would be able to testify to without that confidentiality bullshit? So anyway, Florida police are starting to take DNA from all Florida inmates. And Danny had recently had a tooth pulled. And rather than getting any money for that tooth from the tooth fairy, Danny gets charged with eight counts of murder. Talk about a fucking toothache. Ouch. So Danny is now getting all kinds of fame and notoriety from being the Gainesville Ripper. Just like he's always wanted. In fact, he makes a new female friend. Her name is Sandra London, and Sandra kind of had a thing for serial killers. She's a true crime author and a freelance journalist. In fact, she actually dated another serial killer in high school. His name was Gerard John Schaefer, who was a deputy sheriff and a convicted murderer and an alleged serial killer. But the police just never could prove the other murders because of lack of bodies and evidence. Now Sandra quickly jumped on this case and began writing Danny and the two teamed up and began working on a book together. They also got engaged. Here's Danny singing to Sandra London inside the courtroom where actual business about eight people being killed was supposed to be taking place. Rules say I have to give Mr. Rowling an opportunity to have a say. You have anything you want to say, Mr. Rowling? Well, sir. I'd like to please the court. And could I address the court? Sure. Say whatever you want to say. Thank you. In time. I recall the day I first saw you. I reached out to say I love you. But it was hard to say I couldn't touch you. So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together. Down Mr. the path that you Mr. to follow. Mr. Rollins. So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together. What were my words? All my tears run together, baby. Just like rain. At exactly 6.13 p.m. on Wednesday, October 25th, 2006, Danny Harold Rowling was finally put to death and sent to hell and likely raped, stabbed, and mutilated over and over again before they stuck the needle into Danny's arm, Danny's final words were actually a song. There's no recording allowed when you put people to death, but witnesses say, as he peered through the glass at one of the victim's mothers, he sang in a chant, none greater than thee, O Lord, none greater than thee. And right before that, he had his final meal, which back then, they didn't have a budget limit like they do now, so he was able to eat lobster tail and shrimp, a baked potato and strawberry cheesecake and sweet tea. The kind of meal one has to kill for. And that'll do it for episode seven of Music and Murder. Please stick around for this next song from David Atkins. It is called Ghost at My Back Door, and David wrote this song about his brother who was murdered. And yes, my after episode discussion that I promised you was going to happen is not going to happen this week. Due to scheduling conflicts and me literally getting ready to leave tomorrow for a week. But I promise we will have one next time, even if I have to talk to myself. Also, please follow my IG at music underscore murder underscore podcast. I will follow you back, and it will mean a lot to me. 
as it has meant a lot to me that you have listened to this episode. Thank you, all of you. I appreciate each and every one of you. Till next time, always remember that just because you're paranoid, it does not mean that they're not out to get you. Because they are out to get you. Phone's still on. Fuck. What are you guys still doing here anyway? The show's over. See you guys next episode.